Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, it's lovely to be here with Dr. Carla Groom, uh, Deputy Director of Behavioral Science. She got her doctorate in social psychology in Northwestern, published papers like The Methodological Assumptions of Social Psychology, The Mutual Dependence of Substantial Theory and Method, and Method. Uh, woohoo! That's a, that's the kind of stuff gets me excited. I know that's crazy. Uh, but Carla and I have hooked up in sort of rebel wisdom space. She's got an unbelievably fascinating job, a beautiful perspective on the world that's actually making real difference. Uh, and I'm just a joy to be here with you. Carla, welcome. Oh, thank you. That is the loveliest introduction I think I've ever had, and especially one that cites that paper that I wrote with, with <laughs> um, uh, uh, many, many years ago. Um, I think it was one of the ones I was most proud of, but actually because it's a chapter in a book, um, nobody's ever read it. Um, <laughs> but it is terrific to be here um, and to, to chat through um, all things theory and, and psychology and behavioral science. Amen. Well, I know all about publishing things nobody reads, so we're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, let's uh, uh, let's introduce you to the audience here. You have a really interesting, um, you know, position, and so I'll just say what I think is super interesting about it, and then we'll work our way up to it. So, you know, we connected through like rebel wisdom space and this whole meta modern space, and yet at the same time, here you are in government trying to manage uh, decision making regarding behavioral science and all of this. So, in terms, folks, of the kind of jump process, if we think game A and government and capitalism and all that stuff, and who are actually going to be the leaders, influencers, and decision makers that help make the shift, it's going to be people like you, Carla. And so it's a really beautiful opportunity to connect. So uh, that uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to where it takes us. And so with that background, maybe share a little bit of your narrative and uh, kind of how you got to this kind of crazy space. Cool. Um, yeah, well, thank you again. Um, so where would you where would you like me to to sort of start? Because there's the, um, there's the well, why don't we? Where, yeah, yeah. Um, one possibility is yeah. What was it like getting your doctorate? Maybe we can go out there and sort of get how you got oriented into the field, and then what you experienced it as, and then how that evolved. Why don't we? I'm always interested in hearing people's experiences in doctoral level oh. psychology and what that uh, was like. Oh, that, and that's actually that's a really nice starting point because it was a couple of years before I applied to do um, a doctoral program that I had kind of the idea, which has led to the job that I do now. Hmm. So I, I can probably kind of dovetail those two stories together Please. from that point Love in it. time. Um, so I was, I did psychology um, at A-levels, which is kind of like high school mm -hmm. and fell in love with psychology. Um, went to do it at Cambridge. Um, and I think it was about my second year uh, that I was looking at the intersections between sort of economics and financial decision-making mm. uh, and psychology for my second year project. Um, and it struck me that there was the, the heuristics and biases, um, literature and ideas and approaches might sure. explain why people were making less than good decisions, whether those mm -hmm. are sort of my friends and seeing how people mm -hmm. manage money, mm -hmm. um, how people thought things through. And I was I have very much a sort of uh, social activist conscience at the time, mm. like plenty of 19 year olds. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and I thought there's a way here to put together the psychological understanding of, of these problems that we have thinking things through um, and these very practical, important decisions. Wow. And really what I'd Beautiful. been interested in was politics and psychology. And it'd been tough for me to choose which of those to do at university. I knew I was fond of you for many reasons. Uh, so there's, <laughs> that's certainly an interface I can relate to with all sorts of enthusiasm. Fascinating. Fantastic. So, so I, I, ch I chose psychology, but I've never really stopped thinking about the policy and the politics. 
Um, so I thought, right, I need to really understand um, what is the, I guess it's the social cognitive slash sort of cognitive decision-making literature. Um, and that wasn't, that didn't really feature that much in the Cambridge curriculum, although I did really, really enjoy my, my undergraduate um, course and I, I learned a lot. Um, and that was sort of traditional experimental psychology was the, was the part of the course that I really focused on. And then um, to do my PhD, I thought, no, I need to move into the social cognitive field, which mm. is a very, an American um, approach. There wasn't a lot of it around in the late 90s um, in the UK. Um, so Northwestern specialised in social cognition. Um, and so that was that seemed like the logical place to go. I had there was a number of different um, offers on the table, but I, I really wanted to get get to the bottom of this taking a cognitive approach to understanding the decisions we make in the sort of social field um, and think, well, how can we start to make this practical? Yep. Um, Absolutely. Wonderful. So I think that's that's probably a motivation for a lot of people to go into sort of social cognition. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. So basically, it's basically social cognition. You think about the interface of cognitive science and social psychology. Um, yeah. And as you say, it's sort of like, okay, information processing, decision making on the one hand, and then the social influences, either what you're what you're looking out there, how that impacts you, how you're categorizing certain kinds of things, why you're making decisions in social fields, all of that kind of stuff, just for people out there who don't teach social psychology at the graduate level. <laughs> perfect, perfect, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, started, uh, I started my course and I was working with um, uh, a guy called Jeff Sherman, who's a stereotyping and uh, prejudice um, specialist. Um, so we really learned uh, stereotyping prejudice being sort of a good area as well to be looking at um, social Im implications of psychology. Um, and I was, I definitely got a lot out of my, my PhD. I really, I like the chance to work with all these different people from all these different fields, including um, Tom Cook, who I wrote that paper with, who right. was based outside the psych department, um, working with people in, in uh, cognitive area, Doug Medine being um, uh, one of the key guys that I work with. Um, but it, as I sort of did my comprehensive exams, and for anybody who's choosing between doctoral programs that do and don't have comprehensive exams, I'm a big fan of them. It was three of the worst months of my life, <laughs> but probably the three best, most valuable months, because once I'd read all of the things that um, my professors thought were the most important papers, I no longer had to have that sense of maybe there's a paper out there. If I only just understood that literature, that would make all of this make sense. <laughs> right, right. No, that's actually really, I mean, certainly as somebody who dove deep into the literature, uh, you know, the, the it's pain in the ass. <laughs> and especially if you got to do it for comps. I, I Mostly my joy is that I got to do it for intrinsic motivational reasons. But to know the literature is a very, yeah. very powerful thing. If you're going to be a doctoral thing, to have mastery and competence of the literature in a deep, and profound way is a beautiful thing. So yeah, I can see from the, I certainly agree. We have, we don't have massive comps, but we have serious comps in the doctoral program and people talk about it, consolidating their identity, affording them the capacity of real sense of mastery in particular ways. And I certainly agree with that. Exactly. And it was after my comprehensive exams that I really started to, to for me to, to start to see significant chinks in the methodological kind of armor. No, really? <laughs> I, I can't believe that. It was like you started to doubt the knowledge systems that we were constructing. Oh, is that impossible? <laughs> and, and I like to reflect on this slightly strange kind of twin, double, dual-pronged approach that that the graduate program had of okay. teaching you the literature. And mm -hmm. you know, this was this was very much first section of Journal of Personality like Social Psychology. This was 
very much the hardcore social cognition, very, very, very uh, fashionable at the time, mm -hmm. um, uh, prided itself on being very rigorous, very experimental. Um, and also that we do these courses that really kind of got into why all our methods were broken <laughs> at the same time. And I think it's quite an interesting experience to be taught this mainstream approach and be championing it at the same time as being taught some absolutely fundamental flaws with that approach. Wow. Um, yeah. And and then to supposedly come out of that feeling okay about it. It was um, I could I could use some very mean mean words, um, uh, but it was it was kind of like a clusterfuck. Yeah, <laughs> gaslighting. I don't know. Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, for psychologists, you do have at a reflective moment. You got to be like, ah, given our concerns about identity and coherence and authenticity and absence of denial, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and I could see the replication crisis coming. Mm -hmm. I, it was, it was, it was obvious in the way in which data was collected um, that we were gonna, that we were gonna have problems. And I talked to some of my fellow students, and I knew we were gonna have problems. My but Carla, concern... if we only fix the methods, Carla, we'll be fine as long as we just fix the methods. <laughs> My first, my first worries were about were about some of the, the uh, inapplicable methods. Um, some of it was I realised how how much gap there often was between the hypothesis and the operationalisation. Um, so you take you take you know go away develop some. We would not. I don't think theory is quite the right word. Model. Um, a collection of concepts from which you, that you could describe, that you could say yours, that you derive a prediction from, and see what happens if you um, uh, if you test the prediction. But often there was so much artificiality in the translation between the hypothesis and the operationalization that I don't think you could then take the results and infer anything back to your model. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I started calling this the golden thread or the magic thread, the magic thread that held together the hypothesis and the data. And it's uh, like, this is an illusion. This isn't real. The two don't relate. All right, Carly, get me all activated here. <laughs> In lots of good ways, but I need to regulate myself. <laughs> but I will make the comment. I will make the comment, folks. So my current in progress book, I can't help myself, sorry. I'm trying to activate my frontal lobe, but it's powerful. Um, so, but the bottom line is this is called methodological behaviorism in a technical terms, but it's basically, it's like, oh, we're behavioral scientists. So we learn about experimental methodology. We learn about the building of operational research programs. And then we apply those methods to determine relationships between variables in particular quantitative ways, usually quantitative. Um, and so, and then the issue is the thread between the hypothesis, the conclusion and reality and that golden thread, magic thread, illusory thread, um, perhaps. But anyway, that's the structure of the science of psychology as it currently stands. And of course, Utah is trying to flip that into a much more ontological frame of mental behaviorism. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, that's a terrific, terrific explanation. Um, and then I think the, the final thing that kind of pushed me out of that subfield was the um, resistance to using qualitative data. Um, and that's a theme that stayed with me. Um, I was interested in um, the identity challenges. You mean like uh, conversations like this actually have valuable exactly. stuff in them? The stuff we actually live our lives by, you mean? <laughs> I know, I know this whole, this whole thing that, that your, your subject matter can talk, let's just pretend that's not a thing. Right. Um, <laughs> we all may be zombies after all. <laughs> I, I, I 
was I was interested in an area that there wasn't a lot of social psychological literature on, and I know why because it was both applied and it was interpersonal and it was complex, and then none of those things are things that experimental psychologists are, are, are particularly good at, focused on, interested in, consider legitimate questions. Um, uh, I thought that the actually why, why don't we double click on that for a second, folks? Oh. You go back and translate, reread that for a second. Huh? You mean complex interpersonal dynamics that afford you know participatory relations are not something that actually social psychology is interested in? Huh? That's kind of fascinating. Anyway, sorry again. We're gonna have a little dance around this issue. <laughs> Clearly, for the next hour and a half, I will not be able to help myself. But there it is. You know, that's why I love talking to you. <laughs> I could have like all my rants and then you like explain them <laughs> all of this. This is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, so so the, 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 I, I mean, there's many, many kind of road to Damascus moments that I could right. go over. But I think one of the one of the key ones for me was when I did settle on my dissertation topic, which was what happens to um, children of immigrants um, whose parents speak the language of their homeland what happens when the children do or don't learn that language oh. and then what the implications oh. are for their identity when they go to to university when you, you know first time that they're having to develop their identity on their own and yep. react to how people are seeing them and what expectations they're bringing so as you can see where it kind of connects to stereotyping and prejudice sure. and acculturation and um and also um politics i mean immigration is one of the biggest issues facing the world totally um, uh, I'll also say that that's an example of, so one of the things that uh, on the ontological side, one of the weird things about psychology is that what's the ontological referent? And what it does is it turns things into variable aggregates, okay, rather than individuals. And it needs to at certain levels, but crucially is the interface. But so the variable aggregate here is, oh, do you learn to speak the, the language of your parents? So that becomes a variable. And then we organize those that do, those that don't, and then we'll relate it to particular kinds of identity features down the line as the dependent variable and create variable aggregate relations. Powerful stuff, um, but from a unified theory, well, how does that actually relate to a specific immigrant child in their particular world that as they live in the real existence of being and the complex interpersonal dynamics of that particular situation? And that translation, that interface, absolutely central and fundamentally missing <laughs> in the current structure. Absolutely. So I, I, I was able to put together an argument that said, here are all these complex problems that I've just described and the literature's related to them. And yet I'm going to do this slightly kind of button pressing <laughs> experiment with them. <laughs> um, and I, I, I begged my, my committee, it's like, please, can I at least look those very little literature, psychological literature, or even sociological literature in this area. And I would like to get people to just write about their experiences. These are, you know, we're catching people in the moment. These are recent, um, these are freshmen, they're in this experience, they can write. Um, so can I get them to write about their experiences? Well, it turns out only if I make that into an experimental intervention. Can so I, I just observe you... human mental behavior? <laughs> no, only through methodological lenses. Don't you know what we are? <laughs> oh, oh, this is this is cathartic. So um, um, I was allowed. I was given permission to to do that um, to half the population that I was that to half the participants. But we gotta have a control, so, Carla. <laughs> gotta have a control. So I've got to throw away. <laughs> Half my potential data, <laughs> getting them to write about something I don't care about. Um, in order to observe the effects of something we don't understand on a variable we don't care about. Um, so, yeah. It was, hey, doc uh, Dr. Groom. 
<laughs> let me let me hood you. Thank you. Learned our Thank language. <laughs> so that was that was really for me. That was a pretty key moment, and I realised I don't believe in a psychology that won't let you do qualitative. I was, you know, absolutely saw the value of quants and the. The older I get, the less actually I think I think the more problems I see with quantitative data. But I was I thought this is this is ludicrous. This is observational work. Why aren't we doing it? And that sort of led to some of my interest in working writing that paper with uh, with with Tom Cook um, about mm -hmm. the assumptions um, of psychology and how they're driven by the methods because it was absolutely obvious to me that that's what was going on. So so I did I, I did it. I do call that I do call that methodological fundamentalism. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, anyway, scientist, yes. 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 Totally. <laughs> so, but being being a good a good scientist, I didn't at that point quit psychology because I thought mm -hmm. we've got to deconfound the 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 fact that I was in a particular department in a particular like, part of psychology. So I thought I'll do a postdoc in a completely different part of social psychology. So I went to University of Texas and did it with uh, Jamie Pennybaker, um, who mm. the, the whole department is much more rogue they're much more maverick much more open-minded mm -hmm. methods um, and it was more personality than yep. it had been social psychology and i remember i remember if anybody used the word model um he would kind of laugh at them and i was like yep <laughs> nice. model probably means that you're in the business of creating a a, a laboratory phenomenon and that's probably not in relationship to the real world mm. Um, so i really enjoyed it I, I i i i learned a lot but there was still the feeling even when we do get people to write about their experiences, which was Jamie's big thing, was writing right. About just just so people know, Panabaker, like yeah. you know, the he had this really interesting set of insights that basically relates a lot to things like psychotherapy in some ways, and it has to do the way in which people write about and metabolize events. And he found that there are particular uh, principles and processes by which individuals write that have significant impacts in the way they metabolize various events and then consolidate their identity. Exactly. I mean, really, really groundbreaking stuff. And he was one of the first to be looking at computerized um, analysis of what how people use language. The very, very, very early natural language analysis, um, which was really, was really fun and really interesting. And it was in in a way, it was kind of observational work um, and sort of early data science. But I was really craving the nuance that come from actually studying the meaning of the pieces as opposed to breaking them up into strings of words yeah. and feeding them to a computer. But you could never get to the quantitative levels that he and I both knew you needed to publish right. unless you did this um, breaking down. You could never code enough data. I did code the stuff from my from my PhD. Well, I only had half as much data as I should have done, so I didn't have that much data that needed coding. But it, there was there was a um, there was just an inability to admit and publish any qualitative work. Another side note here, I almost go this route, by the way, in 1997, when I'm uh, gripping the empirical implications of justification theory, what I called it at the time, then it becomes justification hypothesis, justification systems theory. But I'm basically like, okay, actually, I can now position the propositional networks as a particular um, dynamical structure. So I should be able to see propositions connecting to each other in natural language and i should be able mm -hmm. to find a way to quantify that network of proposition into systems of justification around particular nodes oh wow that sounds really cool where did you go with that well because what happens is i flip into ontology and metaphysics even though i don't have the term for it at the time but the story basically is it's like i'm a behavioral scientist i'm still a methodological behaviorist i come with justification and now i want to test it 
Okay, it's like this idea that people justify their actions in social settings based on influence, investment, and consistency, dynamics, and gathering all the stuff together. Okay, and then ultimately, what it happens to me is the strange loop of awareness. The strange loop of awareness is as I begin to develop every experimental analysis that I am doing, I am living out the process of justification itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, then what happens is it goes like it. Normally, what you do is you go description into explanation into experimental methodology to test the explanation based on competing elements. That's the normal thing. Well, what happened to this is I kept backing up and then I dropped into this profound description of verbal behavior as justificatory processes themselves. So the thing looped back and captured the hypothesis within itself in a strange loop mm -hmm. of feedback. And then I was like, at a meta descriptive level, we're all the justifying apes. And that's when it was like, oh my God, it's not so much about experimentation anymore. It's just observing the reality of being a justifier. And so it was a yeah. higher level. And then the whole experiment, can, do, I, do I need to prove that we are this way? Just watch. <laughs> We are this way. <laughs> I'm trying to prove it as it's already done, you know. So it got done, done, and that's when I shifted, mm -hmm. and then then I fell into the tree of knowledge, and then the whole thing was just sort of like this whole experimental thing. We got to come back to it, but good God, do we get to get the field of operations that we're in descriptively in clear uh, framing before we actually need to do all you know the method needs to sit inside a metaphysical, ontological, coherent structure if it's actually to generate cumulative knowledge. But anyway. Uh. Yeah, that's. I, I, it took me a lot longer to get anywhere near the ontology, um, so. but the epistemology stuff. I just, well, yeah, we're both like that. I didn't use the word fucking ontology till like 2015. So you know, I, I'm. <laughs> but it is. I can at least have the. I can now go back and understand what's happening to me. That's a. I didn't. But because we're behavioral sciences, we think philosophy equals epistemology. <laughs> that's what behavioral yeah, sciences yeah. do. <laughs> you know. So yeah, anyway, exactly. Although actually, that paper um, that that I wrote with with Tom Cook. I now think it was actually a lot of this about, it was about the relationship between um, epistemology and ontology and how the two intersect and interrelate. Um, but I didn't, I didn't have the language for that at the time. Um, but I, I could see some other kind of strange things going on, like this idea of what are people interested in? Um, so you go around, you know, around table in a lab group, oh, I'm interested in, in concepts and categories. Like, really? Are you really interested in that? What does it mean to be interested in that? And this idea of what I call being capital I interested in something, I was like, but I'm not. I want to make the world a better place. That's what I'm interested in. But that's not. That's I have a wisdom interested. value interest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so partly for the reasons of um, thinking that the methods were unduly and kind of unforgivably constrained in the academic psychology world. And partly because even if you fixed them, I didn't think that there was space really to apply it or there was a mechanism to apply it or that this was ever going to solve you know solve real world problems which was the whole reason i was in the game in the first place how crazy so, of you you wanted to you wanted to build knowledge to cultivate wisdom to foster a better world oh my god i've never heard of that uh, inclination <laughs> <laughs> i know and, I, and, and that was all i was interested in no, i i yeah it, it's because you're a good a good authentic integrated soul is the that's actually i mean and, and unfortunately you had to get corrupted to realize it through the institution but oh well <laughs> well it, 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 it's, it's it's nice for you to call, call me that uh the, sort of the uncorrupted thing um which then makes it more funny that my next step was to go into public relations 
Um, <laughs> so, right. I, mean, I did I, just have I did just have Zach Stein on the program, so we need to note there may be some dissonance. <laughs> well, I, I, it's a bit, I needed to go back from the. I was in America. I'm British. I need to come back to to the the UK um, and um, and and bring my female partner with me because it's in those days you could do that. Um, uh, same-sex immigration back to the UK, but I couldn't marry her and stay in the States, and I wasn't going to stay in academia. So gotcha. we came to the UK, and I, um, it's, it turns out that a, a PhD in psychology can get you a job in public relations doing their research and Sweet. opinion work. All right, to um, total side note. Actually, when does, so mm -hmm. just curious, marriage in UK, when does that happen? For so same-sex couples? Were, were civil, civil partnerships for 2006, which was kind of okay. marriage in all but name. Yep. Um, okay. And then in 2015, um, equal marriage came in. But before even civil partnerships, there were same-sex immigration rules. Um, so one of, we were one of the couples. One of the points I make about values, how fast things are changing, is to remind mm -hmm. people that when he was elected, Barack Obama was against same-sex marriage in the United States. That's 2008. <laughs> okay. So just people yeah. are like, wow, why the hell don't we move on faster? It's like, dude, things are happening pretty fast. <laughs> You can't even remember that the, the number one legal champion in 2008 was like, no, I don't think people, it's like, oh my God. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. just a pointer, side point, sorry not to distract. <laughs> no, really, 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 really good point. Really good point. Uh, um, so so I, I took the first job that kind of would would, would pay me um, in, in the UK, but actually I sometimes joke that um, I left uh, academia to go into PR to do better science. Oh, um, and that's, and that's not completely crazy because I feel that having having no well, I mean, it's not that you didn't, well, you didn't have peer review. What you had was that you needed what you produced to stand up to scrutiny by journalists. Um, and yeah, journalists, you know, on some ways aren't as sophisticated as peer reviewers, but they're also they're not biased in quite. It, they're not gonna they're not gonna share your same biases and your blind spots. So and you need to be you you actually need to be better at producing robust work. Um, I also had the, the freedom to pick whatever made sense for the client, which sometimes was to produce work that would get them in the newspaper because it would be um, entertainment to get the brand coverage. Um, or it would say a, a problem or a challenge about um, their uh, communications or a strategic challenge that was coming up. And you, the stuff had to be right and you had money to do the work. You could do, I did studies you know, across 11 different countries. Right. Um, and, and I was like, this, this is, this is, this felt like science. You know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not doing fancy regressions. I'm mostly doing cross tabs. I'm doing simple things. Um, I kind of stand behind the, perfectly happy to stand behind the data. Um, nice. So in a lot of ways, it was, it was genuinely more creative than, than mm. academia. And I think that the work was more robust. Um, Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, actually, do you have any suggestions for a peer-reviewed journal for that thing? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the constraints of peer review, I'm so, I don't know, I can't quite, quite find that one. Where does that fit in the whole peer review process? I'm fucking making gardens over here. So yeah, no, I get the, uh, and totally, the opportunity to do that. I've had some, definitely had some experience with robust statistical analysis that actually blur everything. So that's another really important mm -hmm. point. And then, yeah, you got to, what you said is super important. You actually got to stand behind the beta with reasonable, realistic questions from people that are actually like, you know, not lost in the arcane methodological yeah. structure of alchemy, really, alchemic yeah. structure. Yeah. And just like, hey, does this fucking make sense? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. okay, you know. Yeah, exactly. So I did that for three years, learned a lot about different industries. Um, 
but that that kind of bug uh, that, that I was still bitten by the bug to do public service of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in 2006, I saw that the Department for Work and Pensions, which is the department I work working in in the UK, which I don't think has an exact corollary mm -hmm. um, in the states. I think it's maybe Health and Human Services. Um, there's also Social Security. Basically, we, we're a department that does regulates private pensions. It um, pays the, the state pension, Social Security. Mm -hmm. It pays benefits to disabled people. Um, it pays welfare. It runs our yeah. job centres, um, child maintenance um, between um, family members who can't work out child maintenance arrangements hmm. themselves. Huge wow. range of, of, of responsibility. So it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a real privilege to, to kind of work in the intersection of all of those um, incredibly difficult policy areas and policy challenges. Um, and what they what they would what they were doing in 2006 was there a stage of reforming um, the pension system to deal with the fact that, like other um, industrialized economies, we had um, a, a a big group of people working age who were going to retire, leaving a lot smaller group of people working age behind them to pay their pensions. Right. And a decrease over time in the value of private pensions that because mm. traditionally in the uk we'd had extremely good final salary pension schemes um which enabled people to it made, meant that we didn't have a very big state pension because okay. um, it was a, mi a mixed model so the man of the house would go get a job for life comes back mm. with a really generous pension that would support him and his his family mm -hmm. um but over time people moved around more so they um employers were finding this less useful as a recruitment retention tool and people's life expectancy was going up Loads hmm. of different reasons why the amount of money going into pension schemes was going down for both wow. the employer side and the individual side. And without the quit, either you're going to have to jack up taxes or mm -hmm. you're going to have to let pensions get um, poorer. So there was a big piece of work done, which um, I've analysed in quite a lot of detail, to, to work through what are we going to do about this impending um, pensions crisis. Uh -huh. And the idea that they had, one of the ideas, it's a mixture of ideas that they settled on, was to automatically enroll all workers into pension schemes. Huh. So this would be to a duty on all employers of all sizes, even if it's just one person with a nanny, okay. to put everybody uh, above a certain threshold of earnings into a pension scheme with a, a minimum employer contribution. And the individual could opt out if, they, if it didn't suit them. So huh. the idea of putting them in was a big deal. You're changing the payroll system of a country so that some pay that would have gone to people at the time they, that they did, added the value to the employer is now being deferred into old age right. um, but it's also groundbreaking because it had this opt-out and traditional economics would have said well if people had access to a pension scheme and then choosing not to join it well if you opt them in if you then they're just going to opt out because mm -hmm. they've made a rational decision to be out um uh so th th this was the first time and this was um the failure uh, and and, and Cass sunstein talked about this in nudge and they they'd sort of said well well hold on there might be an alternative here and some early work had been done in the um, in financial institutions in the States to look at all companies who, instead of just like, providing access to a pension scheme, um, automatically enrolled people into them. And so the UK decided we're going to do this for the whole country. And for a country the size of 60 million people, this is a really, really big deal. Biggest application of psychological behavioral thinking um, to wow. public policy anywhere in the world. And I wanted a piece of it. So when they advertised for us and social researchers, um, I decided to jump out of uh, my kind of rather rather fun um, uh, and, and and slightly superficial <laughs> um, consultancy world uh, and go and help with the pensions reform. Holy shit! This is a big deal. 
I didn't yeah, know so, about this. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So I'm really interested in this. So that was, that has really been that job of working. I, I, it, took, it took me a year to really get a really good position within that, um, that program, but it was to, to see the level of ambition and that's a sense that you could do anything. Um, because we were doing so many things that everyone thought was impossible and broke all the rules that you mm. just had this incredible sense of, yeah, we could do anything. If we just sit down and figure it out, we'll talk to the right people, bring everyone with us. This was a consensus-based cross-parliamentary agreement. So we had all the parties on board. Wow. You know, absolutely gold standard policymaking. That was my first ever policy job. Oh, um, shit. So that, and, and it's- How long did it take? And, and then you were, you, you obviously you were successful at implementing this, yes? Ultimately. Yeah. Um, so, and I, obviously I was only a teeny tiny cog in this. Um, so the white paper, which is when the government sets out what it's what it's gonna do, I think it was 2006. Um, we passed legislation in 2007 and 2008, um, in, started implementing in 2012. And I think the final bit of implementation finished around 2020. So um, it's <laughs> okay. a, yeah, it's a big, oh, it's a big deal. And an absolutely really well run program that is now adding sort of about 20 billion pounds a year extra into private pension schemes holy shit talk about having an impact in the world good <laughs> god that's amazing oh wow that's a congratulations that's a beautiful thing that's well i was very very lucky to be part of it and to observe what made it a success mm -hmm. um okay. so that and that kept ticking over in my in my head um and uh, the success of that combined with the publication of nudge which talked about some of the that they were um Thaler and Sunstein were involved in some of that sort of early thinking as well um that led the then leader of the opposition David Cameron to think actually I want to bring this kind of behavioral thinking uh into uh, this this sort of nudge thinking into more into my party's position because it kind of had a nice sort of we're not compelling anyone to do anything but we're making interventions in ways that make people's lives better it had a nice kind of center-right appeal to it so right. when he came in in 2010, um, the coalition uh, government came in, he created the Behavioural Insights team, whose purpose was to figure out how you could do more of this. Mm -hmm. um, so their, 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 their presentations would often start with um, automatic enrolment as the, the biggest right. um, demonstration of this. Um, but then their actual practice tended to be more comms-based. Uh, so they would be looking at changing text messages or um, basically mm. communications-based interventions to see if you could get improved take-up of programs or payment uh, of uh, taxes, those sorts of things. So it's really, I think of it as kind of rigorous applied marketing with a psychological okay. flavor. Mm -hmm, uh, a lot mm -hmm. of Gialdini in there. Um, so some of the sort of traditional social influence uh, stuff. And, and crucially, they were also um, wedded to using randomized controlled trials to test mm. their interventions, which, uh, as we know, if you're committed to a particular methodological approach, it will limit what you can think about and what you can do. Um, mm -hmm. So it is a you know, perfectly legitimate uh, enterprise in its own right. Um, but to me, there was still plenty of scope for psychological thinking that didn't fit into that box. Sure. Um, and around 2013, I sort of started to have an idea. Actually, your father suggested so what, what led me to the, the, um, the change of consciousness that allowed this idea to pop into my head was I was I went to group psychodynamic therapy for a year. Um, my gosh, was that eye-opening. Oh, I, I say <laughs> to people, I'm really glad I did it. It was really valuable, but I couldn't in all conscience recommend that to anyone. <laughs> it's, it's, 
such a dangerous business. Um, I bet, but... yeah. Group psychodynamic <laughs> therapy. I actually, I don't even know if I've, been, I mean, I've encountered psychodynamic groups and certainly uh, there's a Tavistock group I attended that's psychoanalytic yeah. group, fascinating. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it, it was very much Tavistock influence. Oh, oh, oh. Um, okay, well, yeah, no, Tavistock's weird folks <laughs> yeah it was extremely weird it was right. it was absolutely um uh, it was like taking psychoactive substances um yeah. uh, it was three hours a week of completely right. bizarre interactions. yeah no doubt but, no i i actually left her i left my tavistock thing with my course i go in there in my old frame watch the whole social influence justificatory dynamics i went in with my system yes. and i was like oh tavistock where we make simple processes unbelievably complex and then everybody decompensates <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my little line for what Tavistock was. And then we try to put the pieces back together. I was like, yeah, you create these weird dynamics. People are going to start doing weird shit. And then you try to offer these weird interpretations and everybody's fucking. Totally. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I, that's that's I, the I, inside I circle on Tavistock. <laughs> that is very much fits with my, with my experience of it. I, yeah, it's a very, 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 very strange world. Uh, but I've been, I've been sent there because of um, a kind of a treatment resistant kind of anxiety, mm -hmm. um, which I now know should have been picked up as autism. Um, and ah. the idea that you slip an autistic, undiagnosed autistic person into a group psychodynamic therapy situation is ludicrous. Yeah, let's talk about a recipe for decompensation. <laughs> <laughs> I pat myself on the back for having got through that. Clearly, um, you do, you do it, must have. Well, you obviously have a very good frontal lobe for sorting. So, you know, that yeah. may have afforded you the, <laughs> the container space without tipping over completely into complete regression. <laughs> that is exactly how it felt. Like I'd come out of the session and my brain would go, put all these things in place. But that process, of course, was useful. The yeah, disruption well, that and, and allows you to see, does I have to make sense out of shit? And if you had that capacity and then you can actually utilize that with efficiency, then you have a generated a map that's really useful guiding you and navigating you. Exactly. So it broke me out of some of the kind of the ruts I've been in is, you know, I'm going to get the civil service career. I'm going to be, you yeah. know, the usual routes. Um, and so and then I, I hit me one day about a way in which you could bring a greater range of social scientific approaches into government. I, I basically wrote on a page mm -hmm. an outline that's not that different from the way the team now works. Yeah. Um, really? So yeah, well, it was, it was, <laughs> it was a, a, a eureka moment. Um, and so that was 2013. And then I started hawking that around senior people in um, DWP for a couple of years saying, I think we should have our own team because there was at that time, behavioral insights team would go around to different um, departments uh, offering health support. Um, they, I think that they did event, they started off as part of government, but then they were, they were partially spun out to, to be a private company, but with kind of special access um, into, into government for a certain period of time. They've actually this, this week, um, been completely sold to an outside uh, entity. So it's like, that's the end of a particular, um, era in government, um, oh. Oh. science. but I was thinking, well, A, I've got this idea about how we might otherwise use psychology also. Okay. I have a lot of the right kind of psychology. So they're all talking about heuristics and biases and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Kahneman and Tversky. It's like, I not only know this literature pretty damn well, I also know the flaws in it. Yes, I, I know. We're, we're gonna have to dive into that one of these days. That's gonna be, I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. So at, at, at a meta level, I, I, I understand the flaws and some of the specific levels around heuristics and biases. So I couldn't, I thought I can't in all good conscience stay out of the debate in government mm -hmm. here because 
if you're using, if you're, if you're say if you're creating um, some messaging, it may be that ideas can come from anywhere. They could come from psychodynamics. They could come from these different approaches. They come from heuristics and biases. But if you're really going to try and stand behind something to make, say, a change to the benefit system, you know, oh. vulnerable people that DWP has responsible for, we play with we play with really live ammunition in the DWP, and I couldn't sit back and not use that experience and expertise that I had, right. and say actually I think we need to put some question marks around some of these um, uh, literatures and these findings because nice. um, they can't be any more than hypotheses um, mm -hmm. because the literature is strong enough. And um, mm. I also was making the case that why would DWP bringing an external could you say what D DWP is again? Could you give them the... Uh, Department for Work and Pensions. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Just, I, just I, for... I no, that's totally fine. Again. We mentioned it before, but I just, for folks that may not have caught that. Absolutely. No, thank you for doing that. Um, I also It also struck me that why would the department that did automatic enrollment buy in external expertise of which their presentation would usually start with automatic enrollment? Why don't we figure out what those magic ingredients were that enabled us to come to such a radical conclusion that we could change the payroll system of the country and then implement it. And I was huh. there, I could see, what, okay, yep. what were the things that were unusual about that policy area, well, the uh -huh. way it was managed, the way that it was commissioned by ministers, huh. um, and then see if I could kind of bottle that and then upskill the department to be able to, to pull off that again. Um, wow. And I had done other policy jobs, um, some with more psychological flavour than others. I also did reform the state pension system, um, but I'd done, I'd done a number of other things as well. And I could see that there'd been something different about that first job I had. Okay. So I, I kind of was building up this business case to, to, to set up a team. Um, and in, in 2015, I'd been working on a, a particular project with a, um, a director general who wasn't far from retirement. and. Um, uh, had been, you know, storing up his frustrations about the department, and I said, mm -hmm. "Oh, I'm. I kind of got this side project in helping the department think about building behavioural science capability." And he said, "Bring me a proposition to embed behavioural science across the department." Um, and, <laughs> and the director general is is the uh, is the second most senior level of, of official um, uh, in a in a department that is a hundred thousand people and spends billions, mm -hmm. so it is a big deal. Um, and between him and the chief uh, analyst, um, a guy called Trevor Huddleston, um, who also said, yep, this is a gap in our analytical service, and we're very mm -hmm. proud of it being the biggest and strongest analytical service in the, de in the department, in the, in the whole of Whitehall, uh, Whitehall being um, British term for the civil service. You don't need gotcha. to know that. But. Okay. Mm -hmm. No, it's helpful uh, to help. Mm -hmm. So he said, I'll give you six months to, to develop this proposition for the director general. Um, so I couldn't believe my luck. I mean, I, to be honest, I'd starting to run out of patience with the civil service and I was thinking about where else I'd go. Mm -hmm. um, but this was this was this was everything I'd wanted since I was 19 uh, was a chance to build. There it is. The, 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 the activist heart to you know, do good in the world and have the power and leverage to do it is coming together. Exactly. <laughs> But, but, but I didn't know, really know how. I had an idea on a page, but there were so many things I didn't know. Uh, so it was definitely a kind of, how am I going to manage the department through this level of uncertainty? Where I'd say, right, I think I kind of have some ideas, but I'm going to have to build this as we go along. Um, because it wasn't a matter of copying an existing process or method. Mm -hmm. um, so it was it, just like in, I, I suppose I went into academia wanting to, to really sort of go out and, and find things that were true and useful. And I found myself being told to 
copy the approaches of other people for reasons I didn't understand. This was exactly, you know, there's a lot of precedent-based work in policy as well. It's, you go, you say, okay, we've got this problem. Well, how is it else has it been done in the past? But to sure. the idea of really doing, taking something forward that you didn't, that there were many, many variables that were mm -hmm. known unknowns and unknown unknowns <laughs> was a challenge. But um, I, 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 I had so much control over what I was able to do mm -hmm. that it was both an enormous opportunity, but also if, if I screwed it up, like, that was it. I, all my political capital was, has gone into this, into this wow. project. Um, luckily, it all kind of, um, it worked out. So more than happy to talk about what the, uh, um, what, what the, what the team sort of does, what we've achieved and how it kind of intersects with, uh, with Rebel Wisdom. But that's kind of, that's my, that's my Beautiful. trajectory. Yeah. So, right. right. And so let, uh, so actually Carla and I are collaborating some, uh, as we built some bridges and I'm interacting with her team and the people I've encountered are lovely. Um, here's one question. I, if we go back a little bit, when you looked at what worked for that transformation of the pension system in terms of mm -hmm. what were the key features can you give a schematic of some of the key elements or principles that you saw that made that a success certainly um so one of them was define the problem and get agreement amongst all parties to an understanding of that problem before you go anywhere near a solution um, All right, so, I'm gonna, let me double click on this. This is what I sensed, yeah. okay? And I'm going to do a shout out to my friend and collaborator, Mike Mascolo, who built this thing called Creating Common Ground, which is a new approach mm -hmm. to politics. And actually, this is essentially principle one in Creating yes. Common Ground. So I just want to make that connection. I'll make sure that Mike know about that moment right here. So that's, a, that's what I oh. sensed. I wondered about that. And that's actually why I wanted to set you up to see if I can make that. And by the way you said it, couldn't it be better? So beautiful. Okay. Oh, perfect. Yes, it, it absolutely is, is crucial for long-term long successful change. And, and with, the, with the pension system, pensions is not a desperately political topic um, mm -hmm. in the UK anyway. Like all of the parties, you know, know that they need to, to get that right. Um, and it's highly, highly, highly technical, which tends to make people not jump to a conclusion that they kind of, there's not, there's not a, a lay intuition about what the solution is. Right. Um, which is also gives you gives you more wriggle room. But what the Pensions Commission did, which were a bunch of people appointed um, by uh, Tony Blair, then Prime Minister, to start to look at this, um, was they said, right, our first report is just going to be the data. And they they had a large number of, of civil servants helping them piece this together so they could see, okay, well, at the moment we've got pension saving falling off a cliff, all of those different um, trends that I, I, that, that I mentioned to you. Well, that was their careful historical analysis of how we don't know where, where we were. And from a psychological or interpersonal psychological perspective, it was, it stopped people blaming each other. You could hmm. see why everything mm -hmm. had happened in the way it happened. And oh. you know, life expectancy going up, mm -hmm. employers not being able to take the commitment that they pay a pension of a certain level to the person dies, while this unre un unexpected and uh, unrecognized increase in life expectancy, mm -hmm. um, you, could, you could see that's a good thing, but we're gonna have to deal with it. Uh -huh. um, you can also see that because of the changing nature of the labour market, um, that there's lots of good reasons why you got into this this position. Right, right. right. Um, so, so the idea that oh, if only so and so hadn't mucked that up was no uh -huh. longer um, right. the argument. You, you mean like <laughs> when people regress to blaming others for their character problems and other kinds of issues, we get into we get stuck. Uh, we don't know yes. that about that in the clinic room. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so this, this is like, this is, this is uh, therapy at a policy-making level. Um, 
uh, and and really beautifully done by the uh, Lord Lord Turner um, uh, um, and two other folks. He had one from academia and one from the, the the trade union movement. So you have employer perspective, academic, and trade union all in the asking the questions and having to agree on the way forward. Um, so once they got that data and shown, okay, we've got a problem here, and they could project into the future. If we don't do anything, this is what it's going to look like. Either you're going to have a to really jack up taxes to pay the state pensions of this large cohort of baby boomers, um, or we need to get people to work longer so they're not taking the state pension so soon, uh, or we're going to have to reduce the real value of the state pension, let pensioners um, get poorer. So yeah, you've got oh. four options: save, or you've got to get people to save more so that you could keep the state pension the same, but people wouldn't get poorer. Mm -hmm. So you save more, work longer, pay more tax, or let pensions get poorer. It's four options. Um, and then they wow. did deliberative yeah. research. Deliberative research was getting ordinary people into rooms across the country. It was called the National Pensions Day debate. And this is long before social media, so it took a lot of organizing. And asked ordinary people to look at those four trade-offs. And naturally, when people looked at them at the beginning of the day, they go, oh, I don't want any of those. Um, and then by the end of the day, they'd realize that you're going to have to do at least one, if not two, that there's no option because here's the data. And that data kind of pins you in and the consensus around the problem pins you in. Wow. Um, and so they said, right, I think what we want to do here is work longer and save more. We don't want to pay more taxes and we don't want the property. Uh, this is really fascinating. I'm really glad I asked because, um, I mean, this is, you know, our whole structure of governance, right? Uh, certainly in the United States. I mean, it's a shit show over here. I mean, it's a disaster, you know, um, and, and to hear a structured system, you know, put together in a particular way that brings sort of a democratic, reflective, understand the problem, understand values, give what options are, get people together, negotiate it out, and then realize, hey, you know, it's not a perfect world, but really it's the best option as we collectively go forward with this, after we feel like we reflected on all these options, uh, let's do it. I mean, what a concept of governance. I know, I know. That's why essentially my job is to yeah. is to spread that thinking everywhere. Because ah. I really think that the world yeah. would be Amen to you. <laughs> Dr. Grimm for president. <laughs> and it means, you know, I, I certainly I'm I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. Um and just hoping that what was learned in that period doesn't get um lost or or reframed as as a no-brainer. Because sometimes people just notice, and I expect the psychology textbooks are guilty of this, they notice that what you've done was to, uh, in the solution we developed, automatic enrollment, was to switch the default from people are not saving unless they choose to, to mm -hmm. people are saving unless they choose not to. Mm -hmm. um, and they say, oh, that's just one idea, it's a no-brainer. It's like, no, it's really not a no-brainer. You, what you needed to do is to create a place where you could challenge the assumptions that the payroll system of the country could be changed. And yep. to do that, you needed to narrow in the size of the problem, get all the commitment to it to, to say, right, this we've got to get people to, to save more. And the working longer bit, you can uh, address partly by increasing state pension age, which was you know the lever, policy lever that the government could pull. But to save more, we had thrown everything at saving more, trying to get people to increase their pension saves. Nothing worked. So you could pay pay for educators to help them. You could you could change the tax incentives. You could simplify the pension products. Very little effect. Mm. 
Wow. So, um, and I could, I could now sort of probably categorize some of that analysis of that work as to, okay, well, there were capability barriers to people saving, there are opportunity barriers and motivational barriers in the way that now my team would diagnose why people weren't doing a certain thing. But gotcha. we, we didn't have words for it in that, in that time, but we were kind of working through them. And when you realize that we tried all of these different things, now there was an appetite to look at something, to ask a more difficult question or to, to look for more difficult, to implement solutions, more ambition. So the, the, the Pensions Commission went hunting around for ideas and that's when they, they, they came across automatic enrollment. Mm -hmm. So yes, the automatic enrollment itself was a single idea, but it had to come on the back of that environment. Um, and then huh. even then, so we do it in a in a, a single like a financial services organization those original mm -hmm. studies um they probably already had default level default investments levels they might have even had a default um uh pattern of investments so do you put them in more risky investments that could lead a higher return or do you put them in mm -hmm. safer investments that lead that, that more guaranteed to to, to yield a lower long-term return and all these decisions that we'd left to consumers um, you, you then have to make. If you're doing that as a whole country, this is not a no-brainer. Wow. What, you, totally. You're taking all that responsibility that we dumped on, well, the well that, that neoclassical economics had said there was no problem to dump mm -hmm. all of that onto individuals. Um, now when you say, actually, that's not okay, now government's got to work through, well, do we, do we enroll people at 1% or if their earnings or 2% or 3%? The higher it is, the more likely it is to be adequate in retirement. But the higher it is, the more likely people are to opt out. And all these really difficult questions. Wow. Yeah, of course. Um, so awesome. when I talk, when I give my talks about automatic enrollment, I try to, to psychology undergraduates, I want them to take away that the policy work to get get through the problem, to narrow, to narrow down on the solution, to get the right idea, and then to work through and implement it is nine tenths of the work. Right. Um, right. Yeah. No, I appreciate that clearly. <clears throat> yeah, and it's often the case. I mean, think about the size. We're talking about a, the size of this thing when you actually then, and all of the various contingencies that you have to deal with. I mean, it really, really, oh, it's beautifully articulated. So, yeah, yeah. so, okay. So that, that helps then clarify uh, this, you know, how you, what you saw there, some of the key principles. Then you set up this team, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And sort of maybe you can tell a little bit about that. And then ultimately we'll wander our way into rebel wisdom and our connection. Sure. Um, so, so the uh, the team I was I, I didn't I didn't know exactly how we were, like I said before I didn't know how we were going to do this. And the first thing was okay. Well, what what is it that behavioural science could bring to policy making and other parts of the Department for Work and Pensions that none of the other professions or functions are doing? Mm -hmm. um, and the problem that I alighted on that everyone could agree was a problem that none of the other professions or functions felt that they owned was that the department sometimes makes decisions based on assumptions about behavior that aren't true. Mm. And that has, that's two, there's two psychological elements of that. Like we know um, what we mean when we use the term behavior? Exactly. <laughs> that's <Nope. laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so I can't help myself. <laughs> we, we had a, I think we had an intuitive sense of, of what we meant by behavior that isn't too far from human mental behavior. Amen, amen. Um, um, and that we, uh, but that was a fairly straightforward argument to make that there were assumptions about behavior that weren't working. Um, and automatic enrollment was an example of if economic theory would predict a level of savings behavior and a level of opt out in the case of automatic enrollment, neither of which were true. So people could relate to that. There were also other programs um, that were that were struggling. Um, so we had 
some, some work going on on some of the health disability benefits, again, where legislation hadn't necessarily worked exactly as originally uh, intended. And that was because the ways in which claimants were behaving, filling in their forms, taking us to tribunal, all those things were not quite as we'd expected. So that would, that resonated for people. Um, where I've later gone in uh, uh, in the in the that problem statement is to focus on why are we making decisions based on assumptions about anything that aren't true, because that gets into what I really love, which is organisational decision making. Huh. And the the whole of the government, in my view. Is, an, is, is a setup for making collective decisions that, that the voters don't want or can't do on their own. So mm -hmm. they're handing it over to uh, government to sort out. Mm -hmm. um, so the job of a civil servant is to bring together all of those different perspectives, knowledge, um, and take the, the, the create options to give to ministers so they can decide which one best aligns with their, their value and um, and how that's going to resonate for their voters. But we are we are essentially a, a collective decision-making design organisation, and yet nobody thinks of it like that. Right. And nobody considered the ways in which decisions get made really as their specialty. A little bit programme project management touch on that, a little bit HR would touch on it, a little bit finance, a little bit policy, but not, not really a kind of how do we make decisions and what are the things that are blunder-prone in there, what things work best, um, and I thought, well, wow. a social scientist is maybe is, is as well-placed as anybody to start to look at those interactions. And that's when I look back again at that automatic enrollment experience. I said, well, what was the management set up there? Uh -huh. uh, and, and it was actually really, un, really, really unusual. It was a very flat hierarchy. Um, it was very outward-facing. So our different teams that you had in the policy team were focused on different groups of stakeholders. You had one focused on the individual savers, you had one focused on the employers, one focused on the pensions industry. So instead of it being inward focused about this bit of uh -huh. the policy or that bit of the legislation, uh -huh. it was around user needs, huh. which I was, would now be the language that, that I would use. And the way in which decisions hmm. were made were all of the big institutions involved had a single program board and they had to fight it out. And that meant that those conversations could often be very difficult, uh -huh. but you were much more likely to get to the right answer than if the department took it away on its own, made uh -huh. a political decision, and then, uh -huh. oh, whoops, it doesn't fit with this, this, or this. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so uh -huh. that was wow. more comfortable. So we had some really phenomenal leadership, some just, yeah, we were very, very lucky to have the people that we had running it. So what, what I now would say is that that was run along the lines of kind of agile and scrum, um, okay. which are now... Uh -huh fashionable um, management practice. I can see a lot of elements in the way you, that, that was working. Can you just then briefly describe, I know what those things are, but folks may yeah. not know what Agile and Scrum are. Sure. So Agile was something that was um, uh, come up, an idea that some software engineers came up with when they kept thinking, why do software projects fail? Mm -hmm. And why does the way, in which, the, the way in which we traditionally manage software projects, which is uh, a client asks a team of developers um, that they want a thing, and then you set up a contract, um, and then they go away and they develop the thing, um, they put all of the, the features in that, that the client says they need, and then they come back and they give it to you in one go, and often it's, it it's not, doesn't do what it wants, what you wanted it to, it doesn't have the effects on the client's customers that they'd want, if we're talking mainly mm -hmm. in the private sector. So these guys in Silicon Valley said, there's something wrong about the way we're working here that keeps leading to faulty, poor quality, um, software design experiences, both rubbish, both for the developers and for the, the end users. 
so they said uh, there was four principles. See how many I can remember. Um, customer interaction over contract management. So they were saying bring the client that's paying to the table so that when you're making a decision about taking the development this way or this way, they're right there because right. The, the written, the written um, communication, especially written in advance, is going to be limited. This is about dealing with uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm. If you've got mm -hmm. high levels of uncertainty, then you've got room for slippage in that contract. Mm -hmm. You've also got, um, uh, they also said, I think it was um, people and interactions over processes and tools. Mm -hmm. So really encouraging talking and, and, um, and sharing ideas rather than just filling in processes mm -hmm. and reporting. Mm -hmm. um, and those pro yeah, contracts, reporting processes, those are all useful. But if, you, if you've got something that needs, that, that you've got attention that needs working through, you've got trade-offs, if you've got uncertainty to manage, you need people to talk. Right. And creating environments where people have constructive conversations turns out to be really hard. Huh. Um, that's what they were. That's what they were. They were trying to do. So there were a couple more, but that's the gotcha. basic. Okay. Yeah. System. No, that helps, and, and that gives just a framework for the kinds of uh, frames we were using and decisions that you were yeah. doing as you as you were guided by. Okay. Yeah. So it's oh. basically it's a much more puts a lot more responsibility on people to think and not follow yeah. a process. Gotcha. And to think, huh. what's changed? Is this still the right thing? Have we got our eye on the prize? Is that still the right prize? Mm -hmm. Is everybody still on board? Right. What's the next step towards that? Nice. Okay. What's the next step towards that? Right. Um, mm -hmm. uh, rather than okay, we know what the whole solution is because even in automatic enrollment, we knew that automatic enrollment at a relatively modest level of savings wasn't going to be the solution to the pensions mm. problem. It was just going to mm. be start. And we knew there'd be more to do, but the idea that no, let's get everybody into saving first, mm -hmm. then we can work on the other elements. Mm. That's very iterative design. Again, part of the, the way that these software guys have encouraged um, designers to think ever since. Mm. So I knew that setting up my team along some of those sorts of lines was mm -hmm. gonna be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. I was also, um, part of what I was trying to do was to bring psychologists, sociologists, and anthropologists into more into decision making and that was partly the guy that had asked me to set up the team was struck by um how much the policy making in general but particularly in, a, in an economic department like ours but economists had done a lot of the heavy lifting when mm -hmm. it came to making doing the theory doing the analysis and turning that into policy prescriptions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and he was thinking well if there are problems that we're still struggling with like closing the disability employment gap mm -hmm. um we're probably not going to get there by getting more economic analysis of the kind mm. we've tried before. Mm -hmm. So it's got mm -hmm. us a long way, but the things that it hasn't managed to solve, it's not going to solve. So he wanted me to bring more um, intellectual diversity mm. into the department. So that was one of the sort of design criteria that I was solving. So, okay, what can I do with psychologists, sociologists, and anthropologists using these kinds of um, more modern management methods and this problem that we've got, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is about making decisions based on assumptions about behavior that aren't true. Um, and then we, just turned into magpies and thieves and just went around looking for hmm. methods, tools, approaches that would solve that, which makes us really unusual as a team that we oh. know what we're there to achieve, mm -hmm. but we are completely agnostic about how we do it. Huh. Um, and, yeah. and that is a really tricky thing to pull off. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Okay, so uh, there's that, and then all of a sudden, then tell me a little bit about how you got into the old rebel wisdom world. How did that happen? What 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 drew you into so, that? And where was that connection? So in fact, this is the perfect segue because I knew that we needed some new ideas. I knew mm -hmm. I'd, I'd stumble upon a problem, whether it was how do I do this management thing properly, mm -hmm. whether it was which tools will help us solve these problems. And we'd be working on some 
So we worked on uh, HR reform. We helped abolish annual appraisals in the department. We were working on these health disability um, processes to try and make them um, uh, work more effectively. We, we were sort of trying our hand in a lot of different things that the department was wrestling with. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd, I'd come across what I could see was a kind of a problem of the way people were framing it or thinking about it or having conversations. And I started looking outside for who else was trying to had was looking at problems like that. So that's why I really went 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 crazy for design thinking because that yep. seemed to solve a lot of the same problems. For agile thinking because that seemed to solve some a lot of the same problems. But rebel wisdom popped up, um, and this seemed to be people who were going out finding ways of thinking about really really hard problems. Right. Okay. So I was like, I'm on board with this train. I want to mm -hmm. and just being at the beginning, I was just you know gorging on the videos um, <laughs> yep. and, and learning so much, particularly from guys like um, Daniel Schmaxenberger and Jordan yeah. Hall, who were totally. putting mm -hmm. all the problems that I was looking at in the context of human evolution mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and history and saying, actually, this some of these problems that I'm wrestling with, I can see a part of a bigger structure yep. and a bigger dynamic set of patterns that we are, right. we, that we are headed towards. And A, it made me feel less lonely. Somebody mm -hmm. was trying to do something incredibly difficult um, and... Uh, ambitious. Yep. Um, uh, I, and I, I developed a phrase for it um, that I call it the, the cutting edge of the hardest stuff. Ah, and, <laughs> and that's what, to me, that's what our team is for. And that's also what I get most from Rebel Wisdom. All right. Nice. Cool. Um, yeah. And so how do we get in touch with each other? <laughs> <laughs> so so then, then I started doing their participatory stuff, partly because uh -huh. I did find it was sort of changing the way that I was thinking things and it and it was enabling me to to be better and better at my job and to cope with mm -hmm. things um and then I think you I think you were involved even in the early days when it was just a listserv not too many uh, professors are doing it but I was I jumped onto <laughs> that train <laughs> and it was lovely to hear other you know I sometimes put a question on there about something um uh, particularly diversity and inclusion type things that come up you know what's the has anybody's heard any data around this or any ideas um so i saw your name that that time and then i think uh, ali bina arranged for you to do a, a seminar right. during the, the pandemic when we were doing all of these online zoom sessions that were so fantastic that's right he asked me what the state of the academy was and i came in and <laughs> gave a bit of an earful of the state of the academy in general and psychology in particular if listeners might imagine that i might have a few things to say about that structure <laughs> oh and then when i heard you talk about it, it's like oh my god somebody else who well not only gets what i get but gets loads more that i can learn from um and uh and so, you know I, I had to follow up with you and see if you'd be interested in talking to me and my team and whether we could find a way to translate the ideas into what we do, um, which I knew we had to be able to because I knew I got, I knew that it was the problems that led me to those areas to get to those ideas. And I knew that there was a way back to application, but I knew yeah. it was also going to be quite tricky because these are, if you're talking about surfacing assumptions, which is what my team does, that's a hard thing to do. It's a really oh. difficult process. Um, and this, and the, the level of assumptions you're getting at are so utterly fundamental that people don't even have a space in their head or a language or anything. So you're having to, to build their understanding and give them a name for it and then give them a context for it. And it's, yeah, it's really difficult stuff, but it felt like, okay, this is somebody who's got an ontological map of what this, this environment actually looks like and an idea about how you go out looking at things that bears a greater resemblance to what the world probably really is. Um, because I knew the limitations of lots of the approaches 
that I had previously been working with. So for me, I was like, I've got to gobble this up. Oh, interesting. <laughs> My heart is singing, Carla. <laughs> Somebody actually sees what I'm saying. It's unbelievable. My cells just had got all activated there. So that was brilliant. Yeah, no, I, and this is super exciting for me. Okay, so I had to bring this up because it's sort of like, obviously I do the whole goddamn rabbit hole deep dive into the foundational assumptions, you know, like what the hell is science? What the hell is mental? What the hell is behavioral? That's really the intersection. And then I have this, you know, I didn't even have the goddamn turns. It's a descriptive metaphysical system in the tree of knowledge and then maps ontology and then brings a meta-theoretical structure to actually coherently make sense out of the descriptive and causal variables in the field that we can actually map um, comprehensively and coherently. Um, but anyway, but then you get that and then you're like, okay, and I can then talk to people, right? And, and then people enter in and it's overloading, but they can see it and then they go out and they're already... But then the fundamental question, obviously, is this thing going to have any utility? And that is, how do you actually bring it into systems, you know? And I'm doing that in like five different contexts, and your system is one of those contexts. And it's really been a joy so far to kind of come in and start to the process of being like, okay, can we build a bridge from this talk thing into this behavioral mm -hmm. science thing that's on the ground, that has a leader that's got an appreciation for all of the assumptions and other things, and then me, and I was like, over here, but I don't, organizational design, real world problems, I like theory, <laughs> you know? And now we're actually <laughs> starting this whole, whole uh, intersection. I'm really, really fascinated and, and joyfully looking forward to seeing what evolves in relation. Oh, well, it's, it's absolutely mutual. And um, one thing that I, I hadn't mentioned about the team as well is, uh, I knew that psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists were going to kind of be some of the core disciplines, but it turned out that a couple of the, the folks I had had um, joined a double majors in philosophy, in addition yeah. to one of those social right. sciences. And that's one of the things that I say that I hadn't anticipated, and I've been saying for a few years now, was how useful philosophy is totally. for what we do. And in fact, more useful than psychology. Yep. Yeah. No, um, uh, that ba you know, yeah. basically, uh, you know, you talk for me is meta-psychology. Uh, I mean, I had some concepts. I really helped my conversation with Zach Stein, so between, right between philosophy and psychology. And really, it's the natural sciences, psychology and philosophy into the social sciences and humanities. And the Utah just sits in that. And it was learning fundamentally, getting back into ultimately what I was doing is a rearranging our metaphysical descriptive systems into an ontological map. And I, you need philosophical frames to actually specify what that is in relationship to epistemology. And really, it got a hell of a lot clearer when I actually figured out how to download philosophy, um, which I didn't have originally as I you know, embarked on this journey. And so totally agree with that. Yeah, I, I've learned so much from my the philosophy chains colleagues, and it's necessary in part because those decisions that go wrong, that make assumptions, it's actually because of theories that we're sharing. Mm -hmm. So we've got to find the right theories, better theories, and who's the first people who can who can cope with those? Or well, it's probably our analytical colleagues, and which is the, the 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 edge of the theory that they can most deal with? Probably the epistemology, but we can work our way through the ontology. So this is kind of the the journey that um, we've managed to between us kindle the enthusiasm of my of my team members to, to see if they can crack this. Um, and I've never found anything they couldn't crack. So I, <laughs> I'm optimistic. <laughs> right, we'll bring the team and we'll bridge the building and see whether the hell this thing's actually got some ontological coherence or not. You know, that sounds exactly. like a wonderful plan. <laughs> um, so in terms of kind of where, so as we, that's a wonderful uh, description of your story, some of the things you're, um, as you, we now obviously then shared a little bit about where we're going in terms of where you are, what you're looking at. I also like to, as we begin to wrap up and consider, you know, kind of like how optimistic or pessimistic or complicated you're feeling about the current situation. Uh, anything there you want to pop into and share? Um, 
I mean, I'm, I'm quite the optimist. Uh-huh. Um, in part because I guess I have a bit of a, a life, um, my life story is a lot of being told that things couldn't be done and then doing them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so nice. to me, saying, oh, we've got these terrible social problems and nothing we can do about it. It's like, really? <laughs> Not until I've got a shot at it, can we conclude that, which feels right. you know, e- extremely arrogant. But also, if people don't try, then nothing is going to get any better. And that's well, one of yeah. the things that I've loved about Rebel Wisdom is that it has that kind of optimistic what are we going to do about this yes. kind of feel it's not just shouting about how rubbish the world is yep um more nuanced than that um and that that is the right not getting disheartened by things being difficult being able to turn see the very very big picture and then the small little changes mm-hmm. that you can make that lead to bigger change mm-hmm. um these are these are things that seem to be kind of embedded in in um Ali and David's kind of DNA um, yeah. and that combination of Ali providing the kind of that that centering and the practice and David being the well where where have we not gone intellectually where have we not mm-hmm. gone and who's thinking about it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that is that is exactly the combination I'm trying to instill in myself and in the team so that does lead me to be optimistic there are people now even more connected by the rebel wisdom folks mm-hmm. all over the world some many of them far smarter than me who hopefully we can start to to work out what the options are for for, for game b if things need to Amen. change and they clearly do need to change um and the bit that they didn't seem to focus on as much and i think there's a number of reasons for that um is the institutional reform side mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that's so they're 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 thinking about journalism obviously um david being a journalist they're thinking a bit about the academy um uh, social media um some of politics but the idea of sort of how organizations work because i'm none of what i'm talking about is really at the political level it's about the civil service it's at the administrative Mm -hmm. level how do collective decisions get made Uh um and that's always been my passion and the, the only a small portion of what my department does is policy although that's one of the biggest reasons for our existence it also is a massive operational enterprise and i've always said you've got to fix the incentives in hr you've got to fix the the ways in which we hand out money from finance you've got to fix all of these different layers and once you've done that you'll probably also find that the policy making gets better as well but if you just look at the the kind of sexy end of what we do uh-huh. and look at the policy making ideas you're 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 never going to get it because i can see how flawed the models are by which we think we make decisions, what it means wow. to quality assure something, what it means to have an idea, what it means to take something forward. So it's that, it's the way, I, to me, it looks like an industrial model of seeing things as stable and mm-hmm. widget-based and replicable. And it's always talking about, a lot of the time, uh, a policy we're talking about moving from steady state A to steady state B. Where are we going to be in 10 years? It's going to look like this. No, everything is changing all the time. Well, so the stories that we, that we tell ourselves feel to me like they're based on an idea that we're all running a factory. Uh-huh. Um, and even then, it's not a great description of a factory, uh-huh. but it right. really doesn't work for the kind of social policy organization that, that I work for. So we need, to, we need to replace that with something else. So that if we've been using a 19th century model of economics and a 19th century model of management, um, and we need to build something new. Well, I see myself as building that something new. At right. least I'm starting to feed some ideas. So you could say, oh, game B for government. That's a big, well, that, they're the same thing, right? Fixing yeah, the problems in a great big organization 
that stem from common thread um, misconceptions that have a historical origin is related to how are we going to develop new ways, which could be quantitative or qualitatively different from what we've got before. Um, and, and also, I think I am, the, the British institutions are different to the ones elsewhere. So you do have to do some of this in a little bit nationally specific ways. Of course. Um, so I would love to connect to people doing it in other parts of the, the world, but I, I don't think that there's a sort of single Western solution or even a single Western problem. And I, that's one of the things I keep banging on about to where the sure. wisdom is. Comparative analysis between the different um, nations and context is king. And that's a huge part of what my team does is to look at problems and say, what's the context? What are the mucky lo local factors that are driving that thing? Whether if you look at an employment problem, it could be that, that the, a, a young mother isn't able to take that job because she'd have to get on the bus at a time in the morning when you can't get a buggy on to care, a kid's childcare. It's all that stuff that stops things happening, not the, the big sexy things that make for good speeches. Wow. So, so that's that kind of much more applied context-driven stuff linked to the most esoteric ideas to me is what you need to develop. Well, sometimes I say we're here to save the world, but that is actually... God, that's lovely. That's pragmatic. It's thoughtful. It's real world based. I completely, I mean, if we're going to make this sort of like when I'm making some comments about the Academy, obviously we're not going to tear the Academy down and, and you know, have it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we do that, the whole thing's coming down. It's a transformational process. This, you know, what game A to game B there's got to, yes, you got to go into the wasteland a little bit, but Jesus, we want to hold the institutions, help them evolve into you know, the butterflies, uh, so we can fly away, yeah. but you got to make that transition. And we need people exactly like you and thinking the way you do uh, in that transitionary space. I love that description. It's a beautiful description. Thanks so much for, for that. Um, one last thing, I won't put you on the spot here, but let me just, I'm just curious about when you, uh, and I ask a couple of people about this, it's sort of like, so you, when you encounter Utah, all right, in terms mm -hmm. of what, um, Maybe you can just reflect a little bit about what that is in terms of esoteric ideas. Um, and I'd just be curious to kind of get your take about like kind of what, you know, feels weird about it, be totally open to that, and what feels really attractive to it, or what questions you maybe even have as you kind of like, now that you're kind of in it, <laughs> you're getting in, I'd just be really curious to get your take. I think the audience might really appreciate your reflections on that uh, as we begin to wrap up here. Sure. Um, I mean, that's a, the hardest question you've asked me so far. Uh, um, <laughs> right for the end. Then we'll, uh, in three minutes, summarize. <laughs> um, I think I think something that I, I, I put in a, a late night email to you once was it feels like a vacuum cleaner going around oh. my head, cleaning up the debris that I that I knew was there after years of studying psychology and years of working in uh, certain institutional contexts, and and. You kind of get the Utah ideas give permission to say, no, 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 hold on a minute. That's not that kind of thing. That's that kind of thing. And no, 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 that kind of category of stuff, you can sweep that away. Um, and areas where I knew that I was slightly fudging my explanation of things. Um, so the word behavior being the one that you quite rightly picked me up on earlier. Um, I knew that there was a lot of things that had the word behavior in that the team pushes back on correctly in government. And then other times when we are very much encouraging people to think about what behavior is and what's driving it. And I knew there was something incoherent about it. And I mean, and, and, and that kind of sense that something isn't quite right is what I train my guys to look for. And, and it's what leads me to rebel wisdom and things. But I, when, when I could see what you were doing, I thought, well, that is like, clearly it, it has a lot of, um, it's a face validity of coherence. It makes sense. It makes sense of a whole lot of things that I knew didn't make sense. The roles of the different disciplines, the, the types of 
phenomena that we ought to be looking at. Um, and it fitted into my understanding of why psychology was so completely, utterly wrong most of the time, was because it didn't know what it's for. And it's like, well, it's about me mental process and behavior. No, you don't know what that means. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you don't know what that means. And, and is this stuff internal and subjective or is it external and objective? Um, and, and these things that just kind of get routinely swept under the carpet. And you can get some significant practical progress with concepts that are a bit a bit fuzzy. Of course. Um, but you can make more progress if you can refine them. So I had a, I had a sense from everything you said that I knew it made sense. I didn't always understand it in the way that I could repeat it to somebody else. Um, but I, I knew that the existing mental models I had were pretty rubbish. And I knew I'd been trying to evolve them. I was like, here's somebody who's done all the work. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's out where the disciplines should fit in and and linked the epistemology ontology thing that had occurred to me quite early on in setting up this team that that this that this was going to be an important link but most people can't even talk about um mm -hmm. so i i think in order for us to talk effectively about behavior in government all the types of problems that we have called behavior um there are a lot of uh, bad assumptions that are at risk in any, of, of entering into any of those conversations and then bringing with them baggage that closes you off to ideas or leads you down the wrong path. And I think replacing the ideas that people have either learned through university or have learned on the job of being in these organizations or just absorbing the kind of the cultural narrative with UTOC will lead them to be able to see things they couldn't see before and help people be more precise and look at things that have not previously been named and solve those problems because that's the way that most problems that I've seen get solved are not a lack of necessarily of knowledge but of shared understanding and precision about exactly what the problem is hence the automatic enrollment solution. You talking now Carla! <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful. one of the greatest answers you gave for the whole thing although the whole thing has been a joy for me. Uh, you know I really appreciate this tour of your vision and life, I, there's a number of times my heart got warmed in relationship to your narrative was, was multitude uh, of times. So, I mean, I think really, I really hope, you know, I, you know, the six people who listen to this are really gonna get a lot out of this. <laughs> but I'm, 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 I'm really, you know. All right, well, there we go. But, but I, I mean, I, I really do think, you know, when we get into the space of the evolution of culture that we're engaged in, um, the networking that you have described throughout this, the way you were putting stuff together and the linkages that you were making, filling such important bridging gaps. Uh, so you're doing, I mean, the real world shit that you've done and then the ability to see that and the ability to move stuff forward. You know, yeah, I'm a theorist and everything, but actually what we really need are leveraging people. You know, yes, we need ideas, but God, do we need people actually to put them, put them together, get organizations thinking, evolving in the right direction and just one layer after another that you articulated showed how you're cap capable of doing it. it's just all inspiring it's just a really brilliant 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 thing so well my 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 um aide put this in the in the diary as you know for my last meeting of the year because he thought <laughs> it'd be it would put me in a great mood to go off for christmas so he was spot on <laughs> beautiful right it's two weeks well deserved you know based on all of the life effort and the wisdom shining that you've done in the real world practical phrenesis as well as sophia and all that other stuff so it's really really been a joy and i really really thank you for all of your contributions. And really, this is, to me, these kinds of, like I said, I was just saying, saying enough, these are the kinds of leveraging things that actually make a difference. Uh, and we can really, really start to 
you know, carve that path to turn into butterflies and we'll follow Dr. Groom in the path. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, thanks so much. I really, really enjoyed it and uh, have a good holiday. You too. Take care.